Welcome to Beyond the Roadmap, Product Talk with AWH, a podcast for product people, by product people. Join us as experts share their experiences and expertise to help you build great products. Okay, welcome to another episode of Beyond the Roadmap. My name is Lucas Latour, and I'm the host. Today, I am interviewing Laura Klein, and Laura has over 20 years of experience in user research. She's the principal at Users Know, which does a number of things, including product management, user research, and user experience design. Um, She's also the author of some very popular books, Build Better Products and UX for Lean Startups, um, which help teams learn more about their users and apply that knowledge uh, to make better products that people use and love. Um, And also, she's the host of Users Know, the podcast, which if you're in the in the product space at all, I highly recommend it. Not only is it is it funny and witty, but it also is very insightful and covers a number of really interesting topics around user research. So, Laura, it is uh, it is great talking to you. Um, thank you for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. So how are how are things going in your world these days? You know, grading on a curve. I'm doing okay. How about you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you yeah, a very steep curve. No. <laughs> yeah. 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 No. It's it's good. It's 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 we're 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 getting through it. So one of the one of the funny things that I, I read about you, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I, I think it was in like one of these bios about you. It said you actually have a deep abiding love for business jargon. Is that actually true? It is, it is, but only because I have a deep and abiding love of the completely absurd. Um, I find things like that just tremendously funny. And I, I <laughs> let me put it this way. One of the most common things that gets said about my, my writing and my speaking is, it's so nice that you don't try to sound smart. <laughs> and, um, mm. and I don't, um, I, I don't, I don't try to sound smart. I don't try to sound like I'm in the know. I don't try to use a lot of jargon because I find it sort of ridiculous. And yeah. Yeah, when it when it slips in, I'm always sort of amused because no, that's oh look I I, I yeah. got caught. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's great. And I actually think Orwell was saying don't use like a more complicated don't use a piece of jargon when you can mm-hmm. use a, a normal word or, or to describe something or a, a normal phrase or sentence. So I appreciate the clarity. I also read not all of it, but I read uh, a good portion of your book, Build Better Products, and I, I can also attest that it is very easy to read and accessible. Um, so, so good job on that front. Thank you. Thanks. That's, that's <laughs> cool. I mean, if you're going to teach people stuff, then you have to assume that they don't already know the stuff. So you should use yeah. words that everybody's going to know. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So um, you have you have a tremendous amount of experience in user research, and it seems like you've you got started what did it say, like maybe 20 years ago? I mean, I'm curious. I know it's it's been a while, but how did you really get into the world of, of user research? Uh, complete accident. Uh, I ended up going to a sort of think tank that um, did, they wanted to figure out the, the future of technology. And uh, I was essentially, you know, an admin for the team that was doing all of this really complicated ethnography and user studies and I didn't know anything about it but you know my job was to help them do that stuff and I just kind of got to learn along the way I was incredibly lucky incredibly privileged and uh, I happened to be in 
the right place at the right time, which, you know, that's, that's a huge part of how people end up doing what they do. Uh, and so I, I got to sort of follow along and just watch people do, I mean, what now I would call it contextual inquiries and user research and usability tests. And, uh, you know, we got to do all kinds of affinity mapping and all kinds of analysis. And, you know, my job was to help figure out the transcripts, basically. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Well, um, it's such a big topic, and uh, it, it's it's hard to know exactly where to start because, for example, in your book, you cover a lot of different things, and there's there's a bunch of different uh, stages you could be at in your product or your company um, when you start thinking about doing user research. But I was thinking maybe it would help uh, just to start from like one end of that spectrum and just think about some of these questions I want to ask um, from the perspective of somebody that's creating a, a new product, maybe they haven't done any, any research yet and, and really just starting with an idea. And I think one of the first questions, you know, you ask yourself, maybe you've, maybe you've got, hopefully that, but maybe you've got an idea in the shower or whatever. Um, and you want to know if your idea is any good, like how, how do you start to think about whether an idea is any good? I mean, it isn't. That's, I think that's the thing. I, I used to give people all kinds of advice on how to test their ideas, but the fact is it isn't. Uh, if you got the idea without doing any user research and without reaching out to the specific group of people, like then it, it is not any good. Um, it could be right. fun. It could, it could get really good, but you need to understand for whom is it good? Because the answer is not everybody. I guarantee you that it's not even a small subset. It's probably you or like one other person. Um, so you have to reach out. You have to talk to the people that um, you know you think it might be good for. Uh, you have to run experiments. There's all kinds of experiments that are extremely well documented um, in my book and other people's books for testing and validating ideas. Um, you know, Thomas Sharon wrote about it. I think David Blend wrote about it. I've written about it extensively. Uh, Eric Reese writes about it. So, uh, oh, Cindy, Cindy Alvarez wrote a great book on customer development. Um, and so there are tons and tons of ways to find out if your idea is any good, but I will shortcut that for you and tell you that it's terrible because ideas for good products don't just appear out of nowhere. They appear out of um, a deep understanding of the market, of the people, of you have to have some reason that you're the right person to build this thing. Because I'll tell you something, ideas are free. Everybody's got ideas, right? It's about execution. It's about actually finding the right people for the, the product. It's about creating a product that people can use, that they want to use, that solves a problem for people, that's priced correctly, that you're able to reach the market. There's so many things that go into products. Uh, that, I mean, great, you had an idea, join the club. You can talk about it if we ever get to go back to bars. <laughs> right. Yeah. And um, no, I think that's a, a great uh, insight because I think some, some folks, especially in the world of startup, they may have some sort of vision for the future. And there's sort of this, this tension between, following your vision and asking users what they want. And actually there's this quote, it, it's come up in my circles recently from people I've been talking to. They, 
attribute it to Henry Ford, where he says, you know, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said that they wanted faster horses. And I kind of wanted to just get your hot take on that and and what you think about that quote. I mean, it's nonsense that I've heard it for 25 years as an excuse not to do user research. People are bad at user research. They don't like doing it. They don't like being told that their idea is terrible. They don't, I mean, even if it's by the people who are supposed to buy it, um, they don't want to hear that they're being they don't all they want to do is really build because building stuff is fun. Don't get me wrong. I really like building stuff. It is perhaps my favorite thing to do is to get together with a little team and just make stuff. It's super great. That's called art or a hobby. It's not actually a product unless it's you know got a market that people you know people want it and they can use it and stuff. So um, it's a nonsense statement and it's used to dismiss the experience of the people who are going to buy your product, I understand that it means what they kind of mean, which is that people are not good at understanding the future of technology, and that is actually quite true. So there is this grain of truth to it, which is why I think it's so popular to misuse. People are not necessarily great at coming up with innovative solutions to problems that they have and understanding all the new technology and advances that could be used, right? People, but here's the thing. If you said, what do you want? And people said faster versus, I provide you with a wealth of information about what the thing is that you're building. So one of the problems that you're experiencing is that your horse is quite slow. If you followed up with lots of, you know, questions about the ownership or, you know, how, you know, how people actually get around, if you followed people around, you actually did your research, you might find out other things that you, know, you have to feed whether you use them or not. Right? That's the thing. Right. It's a thing, of course. I don't know if you know anything about horses. So you can do that, right? Like, they're actually kind of quite slow. They can go lame at any time. Sometimes they're in bad moods and want to fuck you off. I used to ride horses when I was a child. I know about them. Um, so, but there's all sorts of problems that people might have had with their horses. And somebody who understood combustion engine technology would understand that a car might eventually be able to replace the horse in a lot of these ways. Normal people who don't know anything about engines aren't going to go, oh, it would be great to replace this horse with something that takes a really explosive gas that is not available in a lot of places and sets it on fire and uh, moves forward by a series of small explosions. That is not a thing that normal people are going to come up with, right? That's a thing that engineers come up with because they're insane. So that's what I think it means when, when people are saying people don't understand, like people don't know what they want. Now, people actually do know what they want. People want to be able to get from A to B faster and more, you know, more efficiently. And they don't want to have to feed the thing if they're not using it and all sorts of other things. And let's point out, the first cars were terrible. The first cars were much worse than horses, right? No one wanted the very first cars. They were much worse than horses. It took years and years to get to the point where cars were better than horses. So you kind of have to have that vision of what, tech, what the new technology could possibly do for people, but you also have to know what problems you're, you're really solving for them. 
I love that. And I, I think that's, that's the exact right take to, to, you know, for this quote, because, you know, people have said, well, it's two uh, competing ways to get to the same endpoint, And they're really not, I mean, they're, they're, they're competing in the sense that they're incompatible, but they, you know, if you sit in a silo or on your armchair or whatever, and you try to build a product, if you are successful, it's merely by luck. And it's extremely unlikely that you're going to build anything valuable. I, I also want to say just one other thing. This is my, I, sorry, I thought about this a lot because people ask me about it and I've hated this quote my entire life. Or at least since March, whichever was longer. This is, this is the problem. You're not Henry Ford and the thing that you're making is not a <laughs> This is a problem that people have come up, that, that comes up a lot, right? Most of us right now when we're building products, we're using fairly existing technologies to, you know, yes, to solve problems for people, and that's fantastic, but like, very few of us are coming up with a brand new type of, you know, combustion. And of course, I'm not going to come up with the engine, but somebody else did. I don't know who, because stories and history. But um, the car was really a fundamentally new technology, possibly in the same way that, you know, the internet was. But most of us aren't making the first car. Most of us are making, you know, cars now. And while cars now have a lot of interesting things about them and a few innovative technologies and a few things, like, we're all real used to cars, right? It's not a brand new technology in most cases. So it's a very different way of building if you're using existing technologies, you're not trying to get mass adoption of this wild new way of thinking trying to sell people a way to be more productive at work in a very particular way or you're giving people a way to store their phones in a way that their friends can like like this is not this is not the car right right no that's that's also a great point so I guess with with user research, I mean, is there ever a time to not listen to users? Um, well, you should don't listen to the wrong users. I mean, that's, you know, like if they're not actually your user, then you shouldn't be taking their advice. I think ninety percent of the time, people screw up because they're listening to their VCs more than they're listening to their users. Uh, or they're listening to all of their users and giving them all equal weight, as opposed to like the ones that are likely to pay for things. That's a problem. So people listen to the wrong, the wrong users. Don't listen to users if you're not going to use that information, right? I mean, that's just a waste of everybody's time. But I mean, don't do that either, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, certainly, I certainly see people say, "Oh, we don't want to talk to users." We are no. It's like, well, I mean, you don't, but. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I, there, there are maybe ways in which you also influence bad answers, I guess. Maybe that's maybe another time when, but then you're maybe, maybe you're not listening to users in the first place. You're, you're. Don't, don't, do, bad, don't do bad research either, right? But like, don't eat poison isn't the same thing as saying don't eat. Right? You shouldn't cook ever because that one time you made something that poisoned a bunch of people. That's, that's, actually not, that's, that's, that's not the logical conclusion of that statement. You should learn to do it better is what you should do. You should learn not to poison people. 
Yeah, well, that that's a great segue into my next question, which is... How to poison people. Yeah, well, how, how do you poison your users? That's what everyone wants to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, ethics. Ethics are important. Stop poisoning your users. Come on. True. So that's like the bare minimum. I know that the bar is extremely low at the moment, but don't poison anyone. True. True. But but seriously, though, I mean, there are ways in which y you might want to avoid influencing your users. And I guess my, I am curious to know, are there certain ways that are, I mean, readily identifiable that you you could, I guess, influence them to, to, to make bad answers? Yeah, all sorts of ways, right? Like you could lead them uh, in much the way that we are doing currently. Um, if you want a specific answer, it's very easy to get a specific answer. It's very easy to lead people in interviews. But again, there are lots of people. Um, Steve Portman is a good book interviewing users. Um, there's lots of good information out there about how to interview people in ways that will um, how, how to interview users in ways that, that will lead them to the wrong answer. Um, you have to design your experience and your user research in such a way that you're getting the kind of information that you know a lot of people use quant when they should be using qual, a lot of people use uh, some people use qual when they should be using quant, less likely, but uh, you know a lot of people just go out and you know do like they'll they'll do a big demo of the product and then they'll say hey what would you pay for something like this or hey like this or you know that's not useful that's not information what are they supposed to say no <laughs> come on right one of the things that i think is interesting to talk about in this realm is you know when you're trying to figure out an answer to something or let's say you have some sort of hypothesis i guess it, it seems like in your book there's there are ways to to form hypotheses that are that are better than others and I guess in my view, or my question would be, how do you think about forming the right question to, to validate? This is probably one of the hardest things that we have to do. One of the things that I will say is that hypotheses, much like, you know, great product ideas, don't actually just spring from nowhere. That's not, I mean, you shouldn't be getting all the hypotheses by sitting around the room going, hey, what are you doing? We did X, and then oh, let's figure out if there's a way that we can do X. Let's 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 see if there's a way that we can validate that that's the that this feature that I want to build is the correct feature. Like I guarantee you that that's not going to work. That's a terrible way of doing things. Hypotheses come because you've done some actual observation of your users, perhaps using your product. Or if you don't have a product, you've observed them in their natural habitat. You've talked to them. You've had conversations with them. You've actually listened to them. You've designed a study in such a way that you learn a particular thing. And then you start to say, hmm, you know, I'm noticing these patterns. And let's see if we can come up with an experiment to see if those patterns hold true. It's science. I mean, I'm not great at science, I gotta be honest, so maybe this isn't the way scientists actually do things, but I feel like this is the way scientists should do things. Right. So one of the, the top one of the I guess the properties of a hypothesis that you mentioned is this idea of having something that's falsifiable and for, for people that don't know what that is, what, what does it mean to create a falsifiable hypothesis? Is there anything that you could learn that would keep you from doing the thing that you were going to do? Is there anything that you could learn to go, oh, actually, that's a stupid idea. That's a terrible idea. I'm not going to do that. Is there anything that you could learn that would say, ooh, maybe, maybe I should do this other thing instead? 
right? Unless there's something that you can get out of your research that's actually going to change your behavior, then I don't know what you're doing. You're not, but you're not doing your research. Right, right. So it's essentially just knowing what what conditions would exist in which you're wrong, I guess. Yeah. Just knowing how you could be wrong. I'm not sure if it's experimentation and validation or invalidation stage of your, your research. When you're doing you know, that kind of open-ended, you know, ethnographic, just learning about people and learning about their context. And, um, you know, Indy Young calls it the, the problem space of the other people doing it too, but she's the one that I listen to because she's really smart. Um, you know, talks about the problem space. You're, you're looking at the problem space. You're looking at, you're not looking at the product per se. You're looking at who the people are who are using it and what they're trying to do and what their lives are like and their context and all of this. That's great. That's much more open-ended. You don't necessarily need a hypothesis for that. But when you get to the point where you've created those ideas and you've seen those patterns, and you're like, I think, based on all this research that I did, based on all this observation and understanding of people, I think, I believe this thing to be true. Then you have to say, huh, let's see if I can prove whether I'm right or wrong. And boy, people hate being pretty wrong about that stuff. For sure, for sure. So on that topic, do you do you have any advice for people that, you know, maybe they're uncomfortable with user research or they, they're embarrassed or they might, they're afraid they might be embarrassed or because, you know, it, it may have some impact on how you're seen in your job if, if it's found out that, oh, your hypothesis was wrong or is that just a misconception that people have about user research? How do you, how do you sort of counsel people around you know, their, un- their discomfort with user research. Yeah, um, join a better company. I, you know, I promised myself I was gonna stop telling people to quit their jobs. Um, <laughs> right now, it's very hard, but here's the problem. That's not untrue. That, I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't love saying that. There are some organizations where being wrong is very bad for you and for your career. And I think that that environment is a very bad one for producing products that people actually like and use. It might be okay short term because of other things and because of money and because capitalism works weird, but long term, that's not actually going to produce great outcomes for your users. So know if you're in that environment and find other ways to do it. You know, find that's important to realize is that, you know, in most places, delivering stuff that people hate or don't use or that loses the company might is also a little bad for your career. So keep that in mind. Also, you know, user research can absolutely influence what you do and the choices that you make, and you don't always have to share every single bit of the user research with every single person at the company, although I think that products get better when you do. So if you can, join a supportive organization that's actually understanding what we're doing to our users and fixing it. And if that is not an option, work around it and figure out ways that you can still get that information that you need without getting fired. Gotcha. Yeah, that's that's a tough that is a tough situation, but that's good advice. You know, you build the wrong thing. Is is that gonna be better for your career or or not? Because I mean that sounds like that could have even worse consequences yeah. potentially. Yeah, that, I mean that's the thing. It's <laughs> User research doesn't cause people to hate your product. User research tells you that they do. And also tells you in many ways how to fix that or how to avoid that in the first place. So 
it, there, but there is some messenger in some organizations, and that is that is a different problem. Yeah. So I kind of want to go back to sort of the situation where you're, you know, interviewing maybe somebody for the first time, you don't have a product out yet, you haven't done too much research. There's sort of, I guess, there's been advice that I've I've read around how much information you, you share with a user during an interview. Like, you know, you have this, this grand idea and let's say you're an entrepreneur, you feel the desire to go out and start pitching. I guess, do you have any thoughts around how much information you should share with a user during a user interview? What do you want to learn? How, yeah, no, how, good. how does pitching something teach you anything about the person? All it tells you is whether or not you can sell the idea of the product, which in some very limited circumstances can be a useful thing to know. But it's mm -hmm. generally the least useful thing that you can, like once you've passed that, once you know, I can pitch this idea, I can sell them on this great idea. Like, great, you've proven that you're a great salesperson or an average salesperson. You can sell them the, the platonic ideal of your product, fantastic, good for you. That's the bare minimum. Now figure out what you should actually be building. Hmm. When you are thinking about, like trying to figure out buying intent, some people might say, well, it's, it's better to get you know, it, instead of asking somebody, hey, would you buy this, which is a terrible question, but they might say like, well, try to get something like a letter of intent or a sign up or even a purchase. I guess, what are, what are your thoughts around getting commitments during user interviews? And I'm kind of putting the entrepreneur's hat on asking that question, I guess. Um, in some circumstances, it works quite well, but that's more when you have, it depends on where you are in this network. Right? Are you trying to figure out how to build or are you trying to actually sell something? You want to be very careful not to have a sales meeting under false pretenses because that is extremely uncomfortable for the end user and likely to make them hate you. So if you tell people that it's a user research session and then you end up going like, okay, can I get you to sign this? Like, that's, that is a shitty thing to do. People don't stop it. That said, uh, you can do things that you can ask them for referrals to other people to talk about things. You can ask them if they would like to be notified in the future about you know other kinds of things. You can also uh, do user research in things that are explicitly sales calls. That's actually totally a reasonable thing to do. It's set up as a sales call, but you also want to get you know you want to understand what people really want. I think good salespeople do that anyway. They understand what the needs are of the person they're talking to, and they, you know, try to figure out if that's a thing that they can build. So, all kinds of different ways of doing that. But again, I think there are honestly better ways of of assessing that. In some cases, I think what you can do is you can look at. I like looking at past behavior rather than rather than trying to get people to predict future behavior. People really are bad at telling the future. Everybody is. I mean, I wish I were better at it because, boy, that would be a useful skill. People are terrible at knowing what they're going to do in the future, but they're really good at telling you what they did in the past. And so if you can find relevant things to ask them about, you know, how did you solve this problem in the past? Did you spend any money on it? How did you spend that money? What happened? You know, how did you decide what to buy? Did you like it? Did you not like it? What, what did you like about it? Why aren't you still using it? All those kinds of things. I have a, a, a blog post. If you find it's called, I think, Intent to Buy. Um, I'll talk about figuring out intent to buy. But I think if you look at people's past behavior, 
and try to correlate to behaviors that that you hope will make them buy this thing. Gotcha. So rely on past behavior and instead of trying to get some kind of future commitment. So one one thing that comes up is you might get a bunch of compliments on your idea. And I guess for you, like how how do you sort of think about avoiding seeing things through like rose tinted glasses and sort of mitigating your own biases that you're you're bringing into a situation? I mean, I do it by being a tremendous skeptic and incredible pessimist. Startup founders. So I don't really know how startup founders do it. I've never met one who did. The problem is that you have to you have to swap back and forth between you know selling your brilliant vision to a bunch of VCs who are probably as delusional as you are. What they want to hear is that you know you're going to take over the world, and then you have to switch back to. Maybe I'm wrong, and boy, that's that's a hard thing to do. Know know that it's a hard thing to do, <laughs> and also that you will make better lives if you actually do it. That's all I got. Gotcha. Gotcha. Do you go through like I and I don't know on I know you do a lot of consulting work now and and advising and and that sort of stuff. I was going to ask you, do you have like a way to prepare yourself to to do a user interview, or do you have any process? Are you are you still in the trenches doing them actively, or are you more on like the consulting side now? Um, uh, that's a great question. I will not do user research for people. I will do user research if I am designing a product, which I still once in a while will do. Although I I tend to do that as part of a team, not coming in you know as a single consultant you know designer. Uh, do it sort of more in an agile environment working with a team either in-house or as a full-time consultant. Um, so I will, yeah, like I will absolutely do research in that I will talk to people. And um, do I have ways of preparing for it? Yeah. I mean, all this to get a plan of research, you have to write a discussion guide, and you have to get all your research op stuff and all your ducks in a row, all the normal stuff that you that you do 20 years of user research. <laughs> I, I don't really get away from it. Though ever, it just I don't like I said I will not come in and learn about your user for you and then give you a deck or a design sprint or some other thing and go here you go and then leave because why have you just paid me a tremendous amount of money to know about your user why don't you do it why don't I teach you how to do it so you think it's super important that people have these skills internally versus. Um, just exclusively relying on like an outside party? I think it's best that you understand a lot about your user. Um, mm-hmm. If you absolutely cannot do it yourself for some reason, or you cannot learn it, or you cannot hire somebody to do it, and the only way that you can do it is to hire a firm that's going to come in and do it for you, and you know, listen to them, actually read the stuff that they prepare, work with them, to, you know, try to go along and do the research with them. I'm not going to say never do that. I don't think that that's a realistic or helpful statement. But what I will say is that I will do it for you. That's all I can. That's all I can. I, I don't find it fulfilling, honestly, to come in and learn a whole bunch about somebody's future and then talk about recommendations and leave and then not know if those recommendations were correct or if they actually followed them or if they paid off. Like, I, I wouldn't know if I was right. Gotcha. That makes sense. 
So I want to talk about, we've been talking a lot about like the user interview, but there's a bunch of different ways in which you can do user research. Um, and you, you cover um, some of these different ways to, and I guess there's, there's ways to do user research. There's different ways to get validation, I guess. And you also have these, these different sorts of, of assumptions in your book. You talk about the um, assumptions about the product uh, or the, excuse me, the problem, uh, the solution and then implementation. Mm-hmm. And I was just kind of wondering, do you, do you sort of have recommendations for the different ways to go about getting validation depending on the type of assumptions that you're making? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you if you're trying to understand the problem better, you're going to approach it very differently than if you're trying to understand whether the implementation of the problem is the correct like is even possible, right? The the, the joke I always tell it's not a good joke, but it's it's mine. Um, it's that you know, if you know that like you don't have to do a tremendous amount of validation on um, the idea that people want to get to places from where they are. Right now, actually, that doesn't apply as much. But you know, people currently, they fly around, they drive, they go from here to there. This is, we travel, right? Humans travel is a thing that we do, generally speaking, in long distances. Like, we don't need to validate that, that problem exists. We might want to create a product that makes that easier for people. So let's say we come up with the great idea of teleportation. Fantastic idea. It is a really, really good idea. All right, I mean, except for the fact that it probably kills you and builds a new you on the other side. We're not going to talk about that. Um, that's, that's an implementation problem that we're going to work out in the lab. The question is then, the really the hard thing we have to, that we have to, uh, that we have to validate is, can we actually build teleportation? Can we, at hand, can we do it in a way that doesn't kill the person and just rebuild a, you know, a, a doppelganger on the other side? <laughs> Those are important implementation questions, and that's going to be a different, you're going to validate that in a different way than you validate the idea that people would like to get to Paris quicker. Gotcha. Well, you talk about some of these these different methods of getting validation, like you know, using a landing page or doing a Wizard of Oz method or doing a concierge. And I think there's also like you know your your analytics and and data. And I guess do you feel like the and this is kind of a doozy of a question, so I apologize. But like, do you feel like those fit better with certain types of questions than others? Each one fits a different type of question. The thing that I think people are always trying to do is they're always trying to create some kind of theorizing algorithm that is, you know, if X, if I want, you know, if I, if I want to make a great product, I need to do X, Y, and Z in a row, and then a new great product will appear. And that is not how any of this works. How it works is we have to understand what are we trying to learn, what do we not know, what could we learn that would change our behavior, and how do we learn that? So experiment design, and like concierge tests and wizard laws, those are great things, are great tactics to understand and know how they work. And sometimes what you're going to do is you're going to do, I was talking with a, with uh, a person for uh, some research that I'm doing for a class that I'm teaching. And um, we came up with the idea of the reverse Wizard of Oz test, where 
and I'm actually not going to go into what all of the reverse was for last test is. Eventually, I'm going to write a blog post about it, which will all make sense. But you can take certain things and you can kind of do them differently, or you can combine them, or you can have a wizard boss class that comes here, or you can have a landing page plus ethnic architecture. You can just figure out what the hell you want to know and figure out how to learn it. It's hard. It's really hard. That's, that's why there's no just do these five things in a row and you're going to have a great product. That's why I can't tell you you need to talk to N users and then you'll just know the answer. I don't, I don't know. Maybe you'll talk to a thousand users and you'll never know the answer. Maybe there is no idea. Maybe you'll talk to five and you'll just know what to build. It, it all depends. Yeah, that was one thing that I wanted to ask you too, is because I I can't remember if I was reading it might have been like the mom test by Rob Fitzpatrick, but it was saying, well, you do some user interviews if you you know you get like five people roughly speaking, you can know an answer. And I no, no, that's, that's based on usability testing, hmm. and um, it's this idea that after a certain number of usability tests. And usability testing is a very specific type of testing that only tells you like what potential interaction problems are that exist for people completing a specific task. And that's the incredibly useful type. I'm not in any way generating usability testing. Love it. They wish you more of it, but not the only kind of thing we do. Um, anyway, so that was based on this idea that like, if you run it past five people, you will find most of the major problems. The idea with that was always supposed to be, and then once you find a major problem, you should fix those and you should do it again. So if you want to start with five people for a particular kind of research, do five, and do another five. Look for patterns. When you start to see patterns, come up with ideas for how you might test whether those patterns hold true, and then keep going. Talk to another five, right? What will you see patterns that hold? Gotcha. No, that's that's a great answer, and I think it's it's kind of in line with the theme that there's not a single formula for approaching product. You really have to be you, you have to be deliberate about what you want to know and who do you want to talk to, and leverage the knowledge of all these different tools and and methods to come up with the best research approach. So I think that's. That's some great advice, and I think for the people listening, they're going to have a lot of, of ideas and, and, and things to, to look at now. I do want to refer people to what uh, a, a good way would be to find you, or where can they follow you? What do you have going on that, that uh, people can engage with these days? Yeah, so everything that I do is on my website, which is users know. Uh, that's K N O W. So usersknow.com. The podcast is What Is Wrong with UX, and I post it with Kickstarter. Um, it is also on the users know site, so you can reach it from there. And or go to iTunes or Spotify or wherever quality podcasts are sold. Uh, they're free, but you know. And uh, I am currently working on a course for ISDF, which is the Interaction Design Foundation, um, on designing in an agile environment. So I expect to hear more about that coming in 2021. Awesome. All right. Well, Laura Klein, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your perspective. And yeah, we, we hope to have you back again sometime. <laughs> so so uh, it was good talking with you. Great. Thanks so much for having me.
Need some help with product? AWH is a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm here to help you create great digital products. Check out www.awh.net or follow us on Twitter at AWHNet to learn more.